1: Hello everyone, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that simply everything has its own history, like mirrors, eyes and sharks. Or grapes, apes and scrapes, tapes, frappes, so
2: milk-based drinks, couldn't quite get the rhyme working there, and Japes, the history of Jolly Japes, which is all about the history of tricks.
1: Oh, yes, that would it be It certainly
2: good. is. We will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways, for that is what we do, Sam. Who knew, for example, that the history of spies is in fact all about honey, eggs, holes, the armada, and lipstick. It's also about bugs and pigeons.
1: And novels. Novels, yes, novels, yep. films. Yes, I'm excited about spies. I'm, I'm excited about spies. But not yes. after this one.
2: But after this one, yeah. yes.
1: The man sitting opposite me, he is the opposable thumbs. Of- <laughs> the Opposable Thumbs, plural. Plural, <laughs> yes, yeah, So just to work out how that is. You are the Opposable Thumbs of History. It's okay. Professor Extraordinary of Early One of British History at Plymouth University. It's Professor James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam, and thank
2: you for that wonderful introduction. Uh, the man sitting opposite me is the Homo sapien of the hominids. That means you're top. Uh, top in that little top, group dog, top Top dog. it is the truly wonderful historical adventure famed throughout the
1: world the wonderful dr sam willis hello everyone um i hope you've worked out what we're doing i think we've got to adjust this because everyone knows what they're listening to because our podcast has a title and if you've read the title you will have realized that today we're talking about humans we
2: are talking about humans
1: um, and I've mentioned this to a couple of people. Said you can't do a history of humans. Surely the history of humans is all history, and therefore it's impossible to do.
2: That's what my wife said. She said she said you are basically doing the history of everything. Yeah. In that.
1: But that's not true, because we can demonstrate how we can um, think about humans in certain very specific ways and how they absolutely yes. do have a history.
2: You could do an you could do an evolutionary history of humans and you could look at the, the sort of ways in which um, human beings came about and you could think about uh, human nature and you could think about that as a sort of historical traits. Uh, continuity, traits, behavioural characteristics.
1: Oh, Shakespeare's good at that, isn't he?
2: Oh, <laughs> I have a little Shakespeare for you. Ah. I have a little Shakespeare for you later on. A little hamlet.
1: Animals. We can talk about animals a bit as well. Yep. We should say here that this is part one of a sort of two-part podcast uh, because I met my good friend Adam Rutherford, who is a very well-known scientist. Um, he's written a book about humans, and we sat in the park and had a nice chat about it. So we're going to do a bonus episode, which will be uh, my um, my interview. Well, it's not really an interview, my discussion. little chat. Across... Um, Themes in history, a bit of science and history mash up for you. It's actually convinced me that there needs to be more science it and history mash It's fantastic. The,
2: there is also talk about hats and orange suits in, in that, in, in podcast, which I thought was right. extraordinary. <laughs> Absolutely, but that, yeah, that in, interesting mashup between science and history is fascinating. There needs to be more of it. I think. I think. In fact, I think the two of you were wrong. I was listening to this interview on the way there. I think that in fact, um, history, yes, is a science in some ways, uh, but
1: science is a fiction in others. But well, we can play with that later on. And please get in touch with us and let us know what you think about It's all about
2: empiric- empirical research, empirical theory. Disciplines of epistemologies
1: of knowledge. We should do um, another episode of our How to Be a Historian, actually. We,
2: ser- anyway, we certainly should.
1: There are all sorts of ways you can actually think about being a human or how the history of humans sort of comes into play. What have you got for us? I've got a kind of theme that runs through several interesting examples. Ooh. And okay. it's a theme that we have discussed in our book, and it's a theme that we discuss in our live show as well. And we talk a little bit about hand stencils yes. in prehistoric caves. Yes. Okay. Now, these are things that are made by blowing um, ochre or charcoal that's made into a sort of pasty paint out of a pipe across a hand, creating... Yeah. Once you've removed your hand, a thing called a hand shadow. You can do it another way around where you can stick your hand in the paint and make a positive picture on the wall like kids might do.
2: Yeah. Now Or potatoes might do.
1: And we got very interested in this a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, potatoes do that as well, don't they? Yes. I just <laughs> totally won't have what you meant. Potato made. printing. Um now what's interesting about the hand is it's something that does define us as unique in many ways. Yes. You've got your Opposable thumbs, which is what brought me up, the the manual use of tools. Uh, All sorts of things that these these hands. Measuring with hands. Measuring with hands.
2: Handspans, all sorts of. Yeah, gesturing with hands.
1: Gesturing, communicating with hands, which we talk about. But what I really liked, the bit that I got stuck in with, is this idea of that hand shadow representing the passing of time. So the people who made that hand shadow knew that the image would be there for their children to enjoy, for their children's children to enjoy, and so on. I think they'd be amazed to we be there 20,000 years later. Yeah. But the point is, it's it, it actually is not only evidence of creating some kind of art, and that's yeah. something which defines us as unique and as human, but it's about having a concept of the passing of time. And that's something that I think is unique for humans yes. and humanity, and it has the most extraordinary history and you can you can we could do an entire episode on understanding the passing of time and how you think about it and what and how you perceive the passing of time and it also leads on to to okay so if we are interested in the passing of time. One of the things that makes us human is a respect for an understanding of the past, a desire to learn from the past, to think about and learn from the past. That's something that defines us as being human. So you can take this idea of the relationship between humans and time and say, well actually being a historian, as you and I, is something, you and I do, is something which defines us as being human.
2: So an interest in history is something that is Uniquely human.
1: It is uniquely human, and therefore you can then look at that and say, OK, well, wh- who, who were the first historians? Yeah. Now, there's a massive problem here. If you think of those cave paintings and humans having an awareness of time, and then if you Google the history of historians, everyone says, ah, oh, well, there was only one, and the first person was Herodotus, and he was writing in 450 BC and he wrote his histories. The implication being there was no-one before Herodotus who was a historian, which is clearly nonsense. And, um... he,
2: w- he was a historical writer rather than a, a historian. Historian, the, the professional term historian didn't come about until the 19th century and Leopold von Ranke so in, in, in Germany. So the idea is that before that, people are interested in writing about the past, past in, in various ways, but the rigorous methodology of the historian doesn't come about until the 19th century but that is to be just so pedantic it's yeah. to be utterly tedious so I, I thought there's, it a, there's now. a
1: separate my point was is that there is a history of historians mm. Okay and that you Absolutely. can you can say well what does a professional historian do how do you define a professional historian when does that come about was Herodotus one H- who were the people before that who were aware of what had happened in the past how did they record it yes. why why did they vanish Yeah yeah so there's a, a well the one thing Herodotus did do was he traveled around interviewing people and taking yes. their notes and finding out about the past Yes and so in its basis And
2: also at a very in a very sort of in a sort of, in a related way there is there's thinking about how people recorded the past how people memorialised the past attitudes to the dead are also a way of sort of getting at this the i mean i think it is probably an an innately human thing to bury one's dead you know rather than to sort of leave them and, <laughs> and walk off so um, you know that and acts of memorialization along with that burial and commemoration and writing about it
1: yeah And that's more about the kind of the distant past, isn't it? Or or, or thinking about your society, your culture, and what what has happened in the past of your society or culture. But then there's your own personal past and your appreciation and understanding of time within that, which is is itself a unique topic, which we can look through. So
0: even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods
1: putting yourself in positions of the past. Do you, like, do you know where you were when the Twin Towers were attacked?
2: Yes, I do. I was in Washington, D.C. I was a fellow at the Folger Shakespeare Library. And so, yeah, things like that. I, I remember exa- I also remember where I was when Lady Diana died. Mm. So it's key events that are seared on a nation's psyche or a nation's memory that you remember according to where you are.
1: So anyway, this is just part one of my my interest in time. Okay. Basically, I'm going to be talking about time.
2: Okay. Let me let me interject there about a different kind of time, and I think in there is this big sort of conceptual issue that historians have about how time changes. So I, I didn't know you were going to say this, but one of the things that historians are really interested in is looking at change over time. And in particular, they are interested in looking at historical causation. So they're interested in big questions like, why did the French Revolution come about? Why We'd just done something on the Reformation. Uh, why did the Reformation come about? Um, why did uh, the World War I or World War II start? You know, big questions like that. So you've got a whole range of factors at play there. And how do you fit humans into that? human agency into that. And this brings us to, you know, very much to the sort of centre of how we look at how history works and historical causation. If you take somebody like Geoffrey Elton, who we've talked about in the past, this is Ben Elton's uncle, by the way, very famous Tudor historian, uh, a political historian, um, somebody who was a a very traditional, source-based historian, wrote all sorts of things about how history should be written, uh, including the practice of history, uh, political history, principles and practice, which road to the past, uh, various sort of things like that. But at the heart of what he looked at was the role of individuals, of individual human agents within a historical period, and they were the drivers, the driving forces behind how events unfold, how we actually come up with with with. With historical change, and for Elton, in some ways, um, historical human nature is a historical continuum. So he sees it as something that that changes very little. So if you follow his argument through, um, he sees that humanity is very much at the heart of what drives history forward, and I'll read you a quote here. The recognition that at every moment in the past, the future was essentially unpredictable and subject to human choice lies at the heart of a study which represents the past and allows it a life of its own. If men and women are treated as devoid of choice, their reason is demolished. The product is history which dehumanises mankind. History he argues, deals with the activities of men, or with humans, uh, not abstractions. So the idea is that he's against these kind of social scientific models. And for him, he sees individuals as free agents who are acting and they are influencing the way in which history unfolds. He doesn't see them operating in a vacuum, but he gives them primacy. So if you have a look at the way in which, say, an event like the Reformation came about, he would see it being humans as these actors um, who are responding to various other forces, various other kinds of causes, and he groups those into two types. Firstly, situational causes, and secondly, direct causes. If we have a look at situational causes, these are circumstances and conditions that make an event possible within a particular historical period. Direct causes are those human factors which make something happen. So direct causes he argues explain why the event actually happened. Situational causes explain why direct causes proved effective. So if we think about that in terms of a particular case study, if you have a look at Elton's book Reformation Europe 1517 to 1559 which is published in uh, in 1963, he he's talking there about how the Reformation came about. And if you think about the situational causes, you've got here things like the state of the late medieval church, you've got the nationalist resentment of the papacy, you've got spiritual disaffection, you've got the rise of humanism, you've got the desire for you know basically containing and stripping away ecclesiastical wealth which lead to a historical result, which in English terms is the split from Rome. But what actually brings these about is direct causes. So that's the kind of environment, but direct causes. And there it is human actors that are right at the heart of what is driving things forward. So you may have these kind of environmental factors, but it's Luther and his ideas and hammering those sort of theses up against the 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 door. It's their separatist moves by German princes. It's Henry VIII and, and his divorce petition. It's Thomas Cromwell's programme for the political break with Rome. And so at the very heart of history for an empirical historian like that is human agency. The way that other historians or historical schools might think of that... Um, privileges, different kinds of factors. So if you think about it from a Marxist point of view, Marxists are see um, history being moved forward by class struggle or economic determinism, where the individual, individual human agency is subservient to that. Or if you think about uh, a historian like uh, writing in the French Annals School, somebody like um, Brodel, you know, you've got Geographical determinism. So people are shaped by their geographical surroundings. So I think there's a big question when we're thinking about how we conceptualize history how do we fit human agency yeah, in that?
1: Yeah. And the mountain one's interesting. Essentially, the, the, the explanation is the mountain made me do it, Gov.
2: Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: More or less, and it's a really convincing argument, yeah. is that people behave in certain locations because of the environment that they're in.
2: Emmanuel Leroy Laddery has a brilliant chapter called Mountain Freedom, where he contrasts the, 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 the sort of um, life within towns um, where travel is, is very much easier, business, trade, government, state... Police uh, with the free relative freedom of mountains because of the geography and because of the remoteness. Mountain villages, for many many centuries, were almost impervious to those kinds of restrictions. Yes, it's not all about humans, it's about mountains. It's human, yeah, but water as well. Mm. The Mediterranean um, is a big driver. Do you think dogs have
1: a sense of history? I ask this because uh, I broke my dog's leg, didn't I? You did. Or, or sounds terrible. You, you didn't break it. But, I did, well, I did, it was but, entirely um, my fault. 100% my fault.
2: I was actually on the phone to Sam at the time and he said, I've got to go. I think Mo has broken his leg.
1: And he had. And um, he had. Yes, he had. Horrifically, in, in like three places. But anyway, he's, he's down by my feet right now and it's all been screwed back together and he's OK. After six weeks in his cage, he was very angry and ran away. Right, so the point is he broke it running down a hill and he tried yes. to shudder to a stop and his body weight went through his lower forelimbs and they shattered. Yep. So there's this hill which I now can't take him for a walk at. It's my favourite place and it's just up the road. And so I now drive past it and I've thought about getting out but it makes me feel sick. And I want to know what Mo would do if I took him out into that field.
2: We should experiment with that.
1: <laughs> with, will my dog... A, realise and not care, or B, stay in the car shivering. Now, T.T., dogs, they associate yes. things...
2: Is that, his, is that a sense of history, though? Or is that a sense of a response to a particular event that happened to him that is related to sure. a so location? It's equivalent of giving yep.
1: him a bit of bacon if he's yes. done something good, or smacking yes. him over the head with yes. a stick if he's done something which obviously yes. you don't do. But that, that's the point. But learned that's, behaviour. That, that's learned behaviour, yes, but that's fundamentally historical so it has to have happened in your past for you to know about it yes but we know that it's a silly point to make but i think it's actually really important no it's a good good point it's um it's to do with understanding events in a sophisticated way in context yes which is what historians do yes um would you like me to read you an account of someone um, nearly dying in the Münchenstein Bridge disaster of uh, the 14th of June 1891. I, I would, yes. Yeah. This is fantastic. It's not fantastic. I sent you this articles. article yesterday, didn't I? Um, yes, this is, <laughs> yes. So, this is my new favourite article. <laughs> and I didn't article. read it myself. This is my new favourite <laughs> article uh, because of the title of the article. So um, it was published in 1972 by Russell Noyes Jr. and Roy Coletti from the University of Iowa. And it's called The Experience of Dying from Falls. Ooh.
2: I, I, I'm going to hear what you say, but already I'm, like, fizzing with ideas and issues with it.
1: One of the interesting things about it, of course, is is, is being, historic, being a human is, is dying and your experience of dying and how you relate that. Oh, is it you, then people that come back it. to life
2: having... Not necessarily,
1: the... but, um, but that's, that's one way we could look at it. Yes. You know, the, and the association of death and yes. how you understand it yes. and yes. how you experience death. So there, there are some very wonderful novels describing yes. death, um, there's um, Edgar Allan Poe's A Descent Into the Maelstrom, which if you've not read it, uh, you should read it. it is, it's a short story, and if you've not read any Poe before, it's brilliant. Right? It's just absolutely... You you are plunged into poe Um And that's him describing a near-death experience. Wow. He'd not had one. He's inventing the entire thing. Right. But there are lots and lots of uh, historical accounts. So okay. this is a guy who's... Um, in a passenger train and he's in Switzerland and he's about to go over an iron bridge that was made by the same guy who made the Eiffel Tower right unfortunately their understanding of um, mechanical engineering was not quite up to scratch and there had been several extra additions onto the train with another two or three hundred passengers there's something like five hundred passengers all in all At first I did not take it seriously when, near the Burrs Bridge, I felt a sudden strong shock that ensued from our erratic progress. But at the same moment the train stopped in the middle of the fastest run. The shock threw the riders up to the roof. I sat backwards, unable to see what had happened. From the powerful metallic crashing that resounded up ahead, I presumed there had been a collision. I opened the door and intended to go out. "'I noticed that the following car had lifted itself upwards "'and threatened to tumble down on me. "'I turned in my place and wanted to call to my neighbour at the window. "'Out the window!' "'I closed my mouth as I bit my tongue sharply.' Now, there took place, in the shortest possible time, the ghastliest descent that one could imagine. I clung spasmodically to my seat. My arms and legs functioned in their usual way, as if instinctively taking care of themselves. And, swift as lightning, they made reflex parries of the boards, poles and benches that were breaking up around and upon me. During this time, I had a whole flood of thoughts that went through my brain in the clearest way. The thoughts said... The next impact will kill me. A series of pictures showed me in rapid succession everything beautiful and lovable I had ever experienced, and between them sounded the powerful melody of a prelude I had heard in the morning. God is almighty, heaven and earth rest in his hand. We must bow to his will. With this thought, in the midst of all of the fearful turmoil, I was overwhelmed by a feeling of undying peace. Twice more the car swung upwards, then forwards, Part suddenly headed perpendicularly down into the river and the rear part that I was in swung sideways over the embankment and then down into the burrs. The car was shattered. I lay jammed in and pressed under a heap of boards and benches and expected the next car to come crashing down on my head. But there was sudden quiet. The rumbling noise stopped. Blood dripped from my forehead and I felt no pain. That is just (laughs) one... (laughs) astonishing description um, which is in th- this article and that one uh, particularly came from some research made by a Swiss geology professor called Albert Heim in 1892 and he travelled around the Alps trying to understand the Alps and getting accounts of people's experiences of the Alps and one of the experiences he got were people who'd been in this yeah. rail disaster. Right. Yeah. So he's collected all of these experiences and one of the fundamental things that happens to people who are falling off the Alps in eighteen ninety two, I'm sure we can expand, yes. is that time stops. Time absolutely massively slows down. And around this time that he was collecting this, there sprung up an entire scientific discipline into trying understanding people's perception of time changes. And it's really interesting. Has time ever stopped for you? Um, or slowed down.
2: In, in, only in
1: only in meetings. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> time time seems to go time seems to go exceptionally slowly. Have
1: you been enjoying this podcast? I have been enjoying All this right, podcast. How long do you think it's lasted for?
2: I think it's probably well. I, I've enjoyed it, and we've spoken quite a bit already. Has it been fifteen minutes, James? That proves
1: my point. Oh, it's been twenty-five minutes. Twenty-five minutes? No. Yeah. My time God. flies when you're having fun. It, it actually does. does. It does, yeah. And there are all sorts of really interesting experiments that have been conducted. Um, it's always fun hanging out with you, Sam. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> which, I, which I want to, I want to re- recreate some of these experiments. Go um, on. I'm not going to do it now. But um, th- there's a really simple one. Is Basically what happens is there's a kind of a fundamental law that was discovered around this time. And that is if you are trying to estimate a short period of time that period of time tends to be overestimated. And if you're trying to estimate a long period of time, it tends to be underestimated. There's right. a really interesting okay. middle point. Okay. Um, and scientists have been trying to understand that for a very long time. So one way of doing it is you say, right, I'm going to just do the washing up and I'm going to try and stop after three minutes has happened. I'm going to concentrate on something completely right. different yep. and I'm just going to yep. do three minutes or three minutes, 10 seconds, or three minutes, 15. And then That's you do four it. four plates. And then you can do it um, with Maybe. Um, anyone else in your family. You can find out if uh, if men are better at it than women. You can find out if teenagers are better at it than adults. And there's a whole interesting question of time changing and your perception of time changing the older you get. So my grandparents uh, passed recently um, and they lived as if 1930s. Well, yesterday, but they couldn't right, tell yeah. you who the prime minister yep, was. Yep. And so just wanted to finish up by pointing out that the, the relationship between humans and time is massively, massively complicated and that hi- there's a history of trying to understand it. Boom. And I'm going to now give up being a historian and become a time perception scientist. A time lord.
2: Yeah, A time <laughs> lord, if you will, James. Thank you. Doctor Who of history. <laughs> yes. So I want to take us to... Um, I want to take us back to Hamlet, as I promised. And that very famous speech from Act 2, Scene 2... Uh, where Prince Hamlet is talking to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And it's the famous, what a piece of work is man speech. And I think what this is, is uh, uh, the way that I'm sort of thinking about this, is that across time, our understanding of humanity, our understanding of humans, where they come from, where they are in the pecking order, um, has changed over time, and we have a very you know we have a very sort of modern view of this now, but if we go back to the sixteenth century early seventeenth century uh, of which i um, <laughs> which i am very comfortable talking about um, the, you know there is this sense that God made man in a particular sort of hierarchy within the great chain of being. And um, We've talked. I'm sure we've talked about that in the past, but this is basically a hierarchical order of society, uh, with with God at the top, and then with various sort of ranks of angels, and then humans, and then there being human hierarchies, king at the top and nice. and sort of proles at the bottom, and then they are they are above they are above animals. But what this speech is about is it comes to give you a sort of little bit of background in it. Um it's it's he's talking about the way in which what it is to be human is to be is to have reason and to be rational. Um and this is part and parcel of the of the intellectual thought in the Elizabethan mind. And it's what distinguishes humans from animals. And throughout this part of the play, Hamlet is constantly referring to the immorality of the court of Denmark. And this is partly because his uncle, Claudius, his father's brother, his dead father's brother, murdered Hamlet's, br- Hamlet's father and then marries the mother. And continually, um, Hamlet is referring to Claudius, his uncle, his behaviour as a primal beast. So he's seeing him as, a, as, as inhuman, um, the way in which he's behaving. He describes him at one point as a satire, in other words, half man, half horse, and distinguishes him from rational, r- rational human beings. And I'll give you a, I'll give you a, a, a reading of it here, and this is rendered in in straight prose rather than rather than blank verse. So that sort of underlines the the seriousness of it. I will tell you why. So shall my anticipation prevent your discovery and your secrecy to the king and queen? Malt no feather. I have of late, but wherefore I know not, lost all my mirth, forgone all custom of exercises, and indeed it goes so heavily with my disposition that this goodly frame, the earth, seems to me a sterile promontory. This most excellent canopy, the air, look you, this brave o'erhanging firmament, this majestical roof, fretted with golden fire, why, it appeareth no other thing to me than a foul and pestilent congregation of vapours. What a piece of work is man! How noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of the animals. And yet, to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Man delights me not. No, nor woman, neither, though by your smiling you may say seem to say so. So he's absolutely laying into his, you know, into his, um, into his mother and and, and um, I mean, what, what becomes his sort of stepfather, his uncle, who's married her. And I think what he's also the, the bit about the angels there is, is is really interesting because I think what what distinguishes men. Or humans from angels in this kind of in this world picture is that um, men the an- angels have no sort of body bodily form, so there's no sort of corporeal form for them they are they exist in a sort of spiritual dimension, so they are spiritual beings and I think man what distinguishes man from animals is that while they have um while they have the sort of physical form that animals do which angels don't they have this sort of spiritual side to them this kind of rational side to them this sort of thoughtful side to them which which distinguishes them from from animals there we go a little bit that. of little bit of um let's shakespeare for let's you let's
1: finish up by talking about shakespeare because yes. uh, we were somewhere rather special at the weekend. We we? certainly were, yes. We went to a uh, show by the Handlebards. We did um, indeed. If you don't know who the Handlebards are, Google the Handlebards. They're amazing. They're the world's first bicycle touring theatre company. And they uh, came to Exeter, and they did Much Ado About Nothing in the Cloisters Garden of Exeter Cathedral. And it's a wonderful play, and what I loved so much about it was appreciating the... Wonderful physical slapstick acting, which the play necessitates because of the plot, which means you can be fairly certain that you're watching a similar type of acting to that which someone would have seen in the early 17th century. Yep. Yep. When it was written, when it's and that being able to kind of transform yourself on that bridge to appreciate something which is innately human. Yep. Being able to to make hiding in a yeah, tree. Yeah, that's interesting. Look funny. Yes. (laughs) Or being able to um, make flirting seem funny or fraught with danger. That's exactly what Trakes was trying to write. And so I, I love that bridge across time and being able to to appreciate something that a human would have appreciated exactly the same way or in a similar kind of way to me. Yep. All of those centuries ago and and
2: and that kind of tradition of clowning and f- and sort of physical comedy that I th- that I thought was brilliant, if you can get out and see these guys, they are on tour, uh, they are probably very saddle sore by now, but they are it 's some of the best improvised, clever dynamic acting i 've seen in years. It really brings I mean, those of you who are who are interested in Shakespeare or who are even studying Shakespeare really brings it to life um, in, a, in a sort of fantastic way. I've never seen Much Ado About Nothing uh, performed by uh, four men before. Uh, those of you who know the play will, 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 will recognise what a,
1: what a tall feat that is. Uh, the fundamental problem is there are many more characters in there than yes. four and by no means are all of them men. No. That's made me want to do The History of Trains... Oh, the history of trains. And the history of comedy and the history of acting.
2: And the history of cycling. We should do an
1: unexpected history of
2: Shakespeare. Yes. Excellent. Um, thank
1: you all so much for listening. Now, um, please leave us a review on iTunes if you can. It does make all the difference. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dr Sam Willis.
2: And you can follow me at James Daybell. And you can follow Histories of the Unexpected on at
1: unexpectedpod.com do please check out historiesoftheunexpected.com for all of our live shows books and bits and pieces coming up and finally we would like to say that we've recently launched a Patreon account so you can support us um, it really really helps us being able to produce these podcasts uh, we need help with paying for the editing, we need help with paying for the equipment, with soundproofing using studios. Anything you can offer from just one or two dollars per month really will make a huge difference to us and allow us to carry on doing what we do. It would, and
2: a, and a huge heartfelt thanks to those of you who have already uh, really generously uh, supported us. Um, we have a Queen Angela, a Queen Angela McShane, and we have a an emperor, uh, an emperor Zach Golby uh, and many, many other people uh, Laura, uh, Rob uh, the FMG, Julia, Sally a whole host of people uh, who have been really kind and are helping us out in this little mission of ours so thank you very much. So, And
1: um, please find us at patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N patreon.com forward slash histories of the unexpected Thank you. See you soon. Bye Bye